Desire of Ages, Chapter 33 Who are my brethren? The sons of Joseph were far from being in sympathy with Jesus in his work. The reports that reached them in regard to his life and labors filled them with astonishment and dismay. They heard that he devoted entire nights to prayer, that through the day he was thronged by great companies of people and did not give himself time so much as to eat. His friends felt that he was wearing himself out by his incessant labor. They were unable to account for his attitude toward the Pharisees, and there were some who feared that his reason was becoming unsettled. His brothers heard of this and also of the charge brought by the Pharisees that he cast out devils through the power of Satan. They felt keenly the reproach that came upon them through their relation to Jesus. They knew what a tumult his words and works created and were not only alarmed at his bold statements but indignant at his denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees. They decided that he must be persuaded or constrained to cease this manner of labor, and they induced Mary to unite with them, thinking that through his love for her, they might prevail upon him to be more prudent. It was just before this that Jesus had a second time performed the miracle of healing a man possessed blind and dumb. And the Pharisees had reiterated the charge, He casteth out devils through the prince of devils. Christ told them plainly, that in attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, they were cutting themselves off from the fountain of blessing. Those who had spoken against Jesus himself, not discerning his divine character, might receive forgiveness, for through the Holy Spirit they might be brought to see their error and repent. Whatever the sin, if the soul repents and believes, the guilt is washed away in the blood of Christ. But he who rejects the work of the Holy Spirit is placing himself where repentance and faith cannot come to him. It is by the Spirit that God works upon the heart. When men willfully reject the Spirit and declare it to be from Satan, they cut off the channel by which God can communicate with them. When the Spirit is finally rejected, there is no more that God can do for the soul. The Pharisees to whom Jesus spoke this warning did not themselves believe the charge they brought against him. There was not one of those dignitaries, but had felt drawn toward the Savior. They had heard the Spirit's voice in their own hearts, declaring him to be the anointed of Israel. In the light of his presence, they had realized their unholiness and had longed for a righteousness which they could not create. But after their rejection of him, it would be too humiliating to receive him as the Messiah. Having set their feet in the path of unbelief, they were too proud to confess their error. And in order to avoid acknowledging the truth, they tried with desperate violence to dispute the Savior's teaching. The evidence of his power and mercy exasperated them. They could not prevent the Savior from working miracles. They could not silence his teaching. But they did everything in their power to misrepresent him and to falsify his words. Still, the convicting Spirit of God followed them. And they had to build up many barriers in order to withstand its power. 
the mightiest agency that can be brought to bear upon the human heart was striving with them, but they would not yield. It is not God that blinds the eyes of men or hardens their hearts. He sends them light to correct their errors and to lead them in safe paths. It is by the rejection of this light that the eyes are blinded and the heart hardened. Often the process is gradual and almost imperceptible. Light comes to the soul through God's word, through his servants, or by the direct agency of his spirit. But when one ray of light is disregarded, there is a partial benumbing of the spiritual perceptions, and the second revealing of light is less clearly discerned. So the darkness increases until it is night in the soul. Thus it had been with these Jewish leaders. They were convinced that a divine power attended Christ, but in order to resist the truth, they attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. In doing this, they deliberately chose deception. They yielded themselves to Satan, and henceforth they were controlled by his power. Closely connected with Christ's warning in regard to the sin against the Holy Spirit is a warning against idle and evil words. The words are an indication of that which is in the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. But the words are more than an indication of character. They have power to react on the character. Men are influenced by their own words. Often under a momentary impulse prompted by Satan, they give utterance to jealousy or evil surmising, expressing that which they do not really believe. But the expression reacts on the thoughts. They are deceived by their words and come to believe that true which was spoken at Satan's instigation. Having once expressed an opinion or decision, they are often too proud to retract it and try to prove themselves in the right until they come to believe that they are. It is dangerous to utter a word of doubt, dangerous to question and criticize divine light. The habit of careless and irreverent criticism reacts upon the character in fostering irreverence and unbelief. Many a man indulging this habit has gone on unconscious of danger until he was ready to criticize and reject the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Then he added a warning to those who had been impressed by his words, who had heard him gladly, but who had not surrendered themselves for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is not only by resistance, but by neglect that the soul is destroyed. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, said Jesus, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. There are many in Christ's day, as there are today, over whom the control of Satan for the time seemed broken. 
Through the grace of God, they were set free from the evil spirits that held dominion over the soul. They rejoiced in the love of God. But like the stony ground heroes of the parable, they did not abide in his love. They did not surrender themselves to God daily that Christ might dwell in the heart. And when the evil spirit returned with seven other spirits more wicked than himself, they were wholly dominated by the power of evil. When the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new power takes possession of the new heart. A change is wrought which man can never accomplish for himself. It is a supernatural work, bringing a supernatural element into the human nature. The soul that is yielded to Christ becomes his own fortress, which he holds in a revolted world, and he intends that no authority shall be known in it but his own. A soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. But unless we do yield ourselves to the control of Christ, we shall be dominated by the wicked one. We must inevitably be under the control of the one or the other of the two great powers that are contending for the supremacy of the world. It is not necessary for us deliberately to choose the service of the kingdom of darkness in order to come under its dominion. We have only to neglect to ally ourselves with the kingdom of light. If we do not cooperate with the heavenly agencies, Satan will take possession of the heart and will make it his abiding place. The only defense against evil is the indwelling of Christ in the heart through faith in his righteousness. Unless we become vitally connected with God, we can never resist the unhallowed effects of self-love, self-indulgence, and temptation to sin. We may leave off many bad habits. For the time, we may part company with Satan. But without a vital connection with God, through the surrender of ourselves to him moment by moment, we shall be overcome. Without a personal acquaintance with Christ and a continual communion, we are at the mercy of the enemy and shall do his bidding in the end. There are none so hardened as those who have slighted the invitation of mercy and done despite to the Spirit of Grace. The most common manifestation of the sin against the Holy Spirit is in persistently slighting heaven's invitation to repent. Every step in the rejection of Christ is a step toward the rejection of salvation and toward the sin against the Holy Spirit. In rejecting Christ, the Jewish people committed the unpardonable sin, and by refusing the invitation of mercy, we may commit the same error. We offer insult to the Prince of Life and put him to shame before the synagogue of Satan and before the heavenly universe when we refuse to listen to his delegated messengers and instead listen to the agents of Satan who would draw the soul away from Christ. So long as one does this, he can find no hope or pardon and he will finally lose all desire to be reconciled to God. While Jesus was still teaching the people, his disciples brought the message that his mother and his brothers were without and desired to see him. He knew what was in their hearts, and he answered and said unto him that told him, 
Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. All who would receive Christ by faith were united to him by a tie closer than that of human kinship. They would become one with him as he was one with the Father. As a believer and doer of his words, his mother was more nearly and savingly related to him than through her natural relationship. His brothers would receive no benefit from their connection with him unless they accepted him as their personal saviour. What a support Christ would have found in his earthly relatives if they had believed in him as one from heaven and had cooperated with him in doing the work of God. Their unbelief cast a shadow over the earthly life of Jesus. It was part of the bitterness of that cup of woe which he drained for us. The enmity kindled in the human heart against the gospel was keenly felt by the Son of God, and it was most painful to him in his home. For his own heart was full of kindness and love, and he appreciated tender regard in the family relation. His brothers desired that he should concede to their ideas, when such a course would have been utterly out of harmony with his divine mission. They looked upon him as in need of their counsel. They judged him from their human point of view and thought that if he would speak only such things as would be acceptable to the scribes and Pharisees, he would avoid the disagreeable controversy that his words aroused. They thought that he was beside himself in claiming divine authority and in placing himself before the rabbis as a reprover of their sins. They knew that the Pharisees were seeking occasion to accuse him and they felt that he had given them sufficient occasion. With their short measuring line, they could not fathom the mission which he came to fulfill and therefore could not sympathize with him in his trials. Their coarse, unappreciative words showed that they had no true perception of his character and did not discern the divine blended with the human. They often saw him full of grief, but instead of comforting him, their spirit and words only wounded his heart. His sensitive nature was tortured. His motives were misunderstood. His work was uncomprehended. His brothers often brought forward the philosophy of the Pharisees, which was threadbare and hoary with age, and presumed to think that they could teach him, who understood all truth and comprehended all mysteries. They freely condemned that which they could not understand. Their reproaches probed him to the quick, and his soul was wearied and distressed. They avowed faith in God and thought they were vindicating God, when God was with them in the flesh and they knew him not. These things made his path a thorny one to travel. So pained was Christ by the misapprehension in his own home that it was a relief to him to go where it did not exist. There was one home that he loved to visit, the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. For in the atmosphere of faith and love, his spirit had rest. Yet there were none on earth who could comprehend his divine mission or know the burden which he bore in behalf of humanity. Often he could find relief only in being alone and communing with his heavenly Father.
Those who are called to suffer for Christ's sake, who have to endure misapprehension and distrust even in their own home, may find comfort in the thought that Jesus has endured the same. He is moved with compassion for them. He bids them find companionship in Him and relief where He found it, in communion with His Father. Those who accept Christ as their personal Savior are not left as orphans to bear the trials of life alone. He receives them as members of the heavenly family. He bids them call His Father their Father. They are His little ones, dear to the heart of God, bound to Him by the most tender and abiding ties. He has taught them an exceeding tenderness as far surpassing what our father or mother has felt toward us in our helplessness as the divine is above the human. Of Christ's relation to his people, there is a beautiful illustration in the laws given to Israel. When through poverty a Hebrew had been forced to part with his patrimony and to sell himself as a bondservant, the duty of redeeming him and his inheritance fell to the one who was nearest of kin. So the work of redeeming us and our inheritance lost through sin fell upon him who is near of kin unto us. It was to redeem us that he became our kinsman, closer than father, mother, brother, friend, or lover, is the Lord our Savior. Fear not, he says, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Christ loves the heavenly beings that surround his throne, but what shall account for the great love wherewith he has loved us? We cannot understand it but we can know it true in our own experience. And if we do hold a relation of kinship to him, with what tenderness should we regard those who are brethren and sisters of our Lord? Should we not be quick to recognize the claims of our divine relationship? Adopted into the family of God, should we not honor our father and our kindred? <laughs>